I've officiated a lot of weddings over the years. I think it's somewhere in the 20s. Um, I would rather officiate a funeral than a wedding at this point because there's some permanence to that funeral, that wedding, like I'm doing it uh, now, and uh, I'm like, whew, I hope these guys are going to make it. Uh, I'm never sure, honestly, anymore. I've seen couples that I thought for sure would make it who didn't, and couples who I thought had no chance who uh, have made it and had thriving marriages. So I'm done playing Swami when it comes to people's weddings. I've only been in two weddings ever. Um, one was my own. Natalie and I got married in Athens, Georgia. Only one of us cried that day during the ceremony. I am not ashamed to say it was me. Uh, when we got married in a garden and she comes around, there's about a hundred of our friends there and family, and she kind of comes around the corner and, you know, it's that moment where everybody stands and everybody looks at her, so the guy's got like 30 seconds where he can lose it and come unglued and it's all okay because nobody even sees him. And I'm crying and she's beautiful and she comes down and she almost cried. I almost made uh, her cry. We did our vows, and then I had prepared just some things to say to her. She's not a public speaker, so we knew she had to repeat the vows. I, I love to talk, so given the opportunity, I did. And she's, like, got the quivering lip, and, you know, you can see the throat. She's trying to hold it together. It was really a, a perfect day, and I'd do it again. Like, in my life, there won't be ten better days than that day of, of marrying her. And I don't talk about her, like... Uh, in church a whole lot in sermons, but man, she's uh, my best friend, and we have such a neat marriage. It's, um, it's really fun to be married to the coolest girl that I ever met. Um, she's awesome. The other, mar- the other wedding that I was part of was on in that same year. It was my brother's wedding. It's the only wedding that I've ever been a groomsman in, uh, and I'm not sad about that in any way. Um, that wedding was very memorable for three reasons. One, and all the photos after uh, that my brother's taking with all the friends and family and sort of the wedding party, there was a fern right behind my brother. So when you look at the wedding photos of my brother from that day, it looks like he has a monstrous afro behind him, and I'll never forget that. It's fantastic. Like every time we go down to my mom's at Christmas or for whatever, I always look at that you know, photo and <laughs> just chuckle. The other reason I remember that one's because it was in the church we grew up in, which was a large church, and it came on television every Sunday. And so you had uh, television lights uh, that were on the stage. It was really hot. Now, anytime I perform a wedding, officiate a wedding, I always say, make sure you, you, know, you keep your knees bent like you could go down. It's brutally hot in this church up on the stage. And uh, in the middle of, you know, in the, middle of the, the wedding ceremony, I'm here, my brother and my sister-in-law are right here. And her brother is right here on the stage, right by the piano. And in the middle of it, all you hear is, and then you hear that thing where somebody hits the piano. And he had gone down and nailed the piano on the way down. And so there are two people officiating the wedding, two pastors. And one pastor, uh, like, he doesn't, they stop for a moment, and he continues to officiate. And the other pastor's job is to take uh, Robert and get him over here out of the way and kind of, like, get him, like, good and revived and make sure he's okay. I'll never forget that. Like, I can't remember anything about that ceremony. I only remember the sound of that piano as his head hit it going down. Uh, it, was, it was fantastic. So um, I got a lot. I, I think that will tell you. I have a lot of acquaintances. I have a few, like really what I would call like fierce uh, friends. A lot of you I would consider to be fierce friends. Uh, but because we've moved around a little bit, like, um, and because of sort of, Natalie was really young, when we got married, but the church that we were serving in, all of our friends 
had already gotten married. Like, uh, so I was 26 and she was 20, and all of our friends who we were in Sunday school with had already been married. So in that phase where we would have been going to weddings and being in weddings, we didn't do it. By contrast, we had uh, friends Neil and Lindsay Culler, and when they got uh, when after they got married, they were in weddings, it seemed like, every weekend. Like, three weekends a month, they were off in a wedding or going to a wedding, and I never understood that. I, I don't have a million friends. I feel like I have a tighter inner circle of people who really know me. Like, how, how are you? Are you, like, a hundred friends, or are you a few fierce friends who know where you stand? Even, like, even to this day, every time we go home to my mom's to go visit her, uh, I just broke one of the rules I'm going to uh, talk about later in the sermon, actually. Every time I go back to my hometown, uh, my mom's like, hey, do you want Uncle So-and-So to come over and see the kids? Do you want Miss So-and-So to come over and see the kids? I'm like, no, I want to sit here and visit with you and my brother and my sister-in-law and see my stepmom one day. And other than that, I don't want to see anybody. I don't want to go to anybody's house. I don't want to go play cards. I don't want to go to Outback Steakhouse. I don't want to do any of that. Like, I want to sit here and drink your sweet tea and eat the Chex Mix that you've made for us and do nothing else. I don't want to see anybody. Life's about relationships. And as we begin to wrap up the Breathing Room series today, like, I think this is the most important message in a lot of ways. Life is about relationships. It's about our relationship with God. It's about our relationships with others. Nobody is ever made to be a Lone Ranger. Do you know any Lone Rangers? Like, I've known some people who were, like, freakishly Lone Rangers. Like, you go into their life and even into their home, and you're like, whew, you should have a TLC show. Like, this is disturbing. People are made for relationships with other people. And so let me ask, like, just mentally in your life, who matters the most to you? Who are the people in your life who matter most to you? And then as a follow-up question, even before we get started, do those people know that they matter the most to you? Do they know that they matter the most to you? I tell Natalie every day, I love you, babe. We have all our little pet nicknames that, for each other and all that stuff, and, uh, and I, I let her know every day. But there are some times where I just need to like slow down and slow myself down, not her, and just say, hey, I just want you to know. Like, you're my favorite human being of all the human beings. Like, that's how I'll say it in our house. Like, or I look at my boy sometime and I'm like, it is the greatest joy in my life to be your dad. People need to know we love them. We get to go in so fast and we live so fast and we have so little margin, the whole breathing room idea, that sometimes the people who should be most central in our life don't hear how central they are because we're so busy running around. We find margin at the edges when we become really clear about what's central in our life. This month, we've been trying to live out some of what we're talking about in our home, and we've found some financial margin on the edges because we've clarified what are going to be the most central things uh, in our life. And so, for example, I shared a couple of weeks ago, we had a friend who passed away, and, um, and so we mailed her husband a check just to say, hey, we're thinking about you can't imagine having to enter into a parenting journey with three small children on your own. Um, and uh, so to do that, because that's central, 
we had to free up some room on the edges and say, okay, this month we're not going to spend here and we're going to cut some other things out. We, we find room on the margins. We create breathing room in life when we are really clear about what's central. And so today, as we talk about relationships, we've got to figure out what, who are we going to cheat. The title of today's message is Cheating in Relationships. We've got to figure out who we're going to cheat on the edges so that we can give our best energy to the people and things that are the most central. And so if you've got uh, your Bible, 2 Timothy chapter 4, um, this is Paul's, one of Paul's last letters. It's to his protege, uh, Timothy. Paul is old. He's toward the end of his life. Paul would lose his life in AD 66 uh, under the, the, the rule of Emperor Nero. He would be beheaded. And, uh, but he's old at this point. He's at the end of his life. His ministry is nearing the end. He says so much. He's got a lot of miles. If you ever want to hear about the life of Paul, at one point he says, you think you've had a hard life? Like, I've been shipwrecked. I've been beaten. I've been still. I mean, he just goes over this list of everything that he's had happen to him as he's followed Jesus. And so he's got a lot of miles on that body and on that soul. And so in this book, he's at the end, and he's giving Timothy some pastoral advice. Timothy is going to be one of the guys who he's going to pass the baton to, and Timothy's going to run with it. And so he's giving him pastoral advice, and now he's going to give a personal word to Timothy. He's going to say, hey, uh, Timothy, I just want to give you some final instructions, real practical. This isn't like, you know, love your neighbor stuff. This is just clearing up some details. And so in verse 9, we're going to start there. He says, now, Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord, verse 17, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from a lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. It always has been. It's been one of my favorites for over 20 years now. And, uh, and I'm not sure why, in some ways, uh, why it stuck with me the first time I read it. But it really did. It's a lot of names. If you're ever reading, uh, especially in the Old Testament, but also sometimes in the New, and there's a name of a city or a name of a person that you don't know how to pronounce and you have to read out loud, just read fast and act like you know what you're doing and, uh, and it's okay. Like I'm not exactly how to, sure how to say all of these names. I do my best on it, do some work on it, try to figure it out. Some of these names are really familiar. You're going to know them in just a moment when we say this is who this is, this is who this is. Some of them aren't familiar to us at all. They may just be mentioned one time uh, the Bible, maybe just here, and that's all we know. But in this, we see... But in life, there really are three kinds of relationships. And uh, we'll sort of, in the back of your mind, play the old, do uh, you remember the Tom Cochran, Life is a Highway? I think Rascal Flatts redid it. Just play that in the back of your mind because we're going to talk about like a highway metaphor here. 
if this is Paul going down the road, in life we're going to have three different kinds of relationships, all right? The first one is um, on-ramp and off-ramp people. Uh, and this is, the, most people in life are going to be on-rampers and off-rampers. So uh, some people are going to off-ramp. Some people are going to on-ramp. If you live in Massachusetts, you get this thing, the clover thing, where we all almost die trying to get on and off the highway. A lot of people are going to on-ramp and off-ramp with you in life. And this is the majority of the people, even in this passage as he's talking. There are two types of on-rampers and off-rampers in our lives. The first kind is deserters. Deserters. People who just leave, okay? Uh, the deserter here, of it, he lists the guy named Demas. He's an off-ramp or a deserter. Uh, Demas is mentioned, I think, three times in the New Testament. The first time are really nice. Demas is a ministry partner of Paul's. They're buddies. They're planting churches and living on mission together. But something happens. Uh, not totally sure what it is. In verse 10, it says, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Now, we don't know from Christian history exactly what happened with Demas. We don't know if it was selfishness. He didn't like how Paul was doing things. We don't know if it's sinfulness. And so there's something that happens and he loses his integrity and he gets disqualified. But we do know that Demas off-ramp from Paul's ministry and from Paul's life and deserted him, it says, because he loved uh, the things of this world. I had a youth pastor when I was um, 16 and he would say this. He would say, the faith that falters before the finish had a fatal flaw from the first. So what happens with Demas, there's some type of flaw in his faith. It seems like in reading Christian history, he didn't just leave Paul. It seems like he left the faith entirely. The faith that falters before the finish had a fatal flaw from the first. And Demas off-ramps because he is a deserter. Now, the second type of people who are going to off-ramp and on-ramp in our life, and these are much more pleasant, are people who get a new mission. And the, he gives us several examples here of people like this. I think he lists a guy named Crescens, he lists Mark, he lists Titus, and a couple of others. These are people who God just moves along from our life or moves us along from them because he gives us a new mission. And, uh, and man, life's all about this. Like somebody comes in, they're a co-worker, then they go out, they get another job. Uh, you see this all the time. Uh, they're not deserters. They're there for a season. And some of these people, by the way, specifically in this list, are really important. Mark, you see him mentioned in verse 11. Here, let me read it again. Luke alone is with me. Luke, having written the gospel of Luke and also the book of Acts. So Paul is pouring into Luke. Luke is gone, but he's, he, actually he's still there. He's a friend. And it says, Mark, go get Mark and bring him with you. Mark is John Mark who wrote the book of Mark. Um, and so obviously a really important guy to our Bible and how we got it. He lists some other guys. Crescens has gone to uh, Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Starting in a couple weeks, we're going to begin a series called Amateurs where we look at the book of Titus. This is Titus. It's another one of Timothy's uh, or of Paul's understudies. And so these guys have on-ramped and now they're going to off-ramp and they're moving along and they're part of his life as he's planting churches and moving around the Roman Empire. And a lot of our life is going to have that. The next type of person, uh, the unfortunate ones, are the people who are going like this. Uh, you list a guy named Alexander. Uh, these are people who are opponents. 
people who are going to be your critics, people who will be your enemies, and people who are going to be roadblocks. He, said, he, he mentions a guy named Alexander the silversmith. He says, beware of Alexander. God is going to take care of that dude. That's a bad guy. Beware of him. Do you have any people in your life who are like this? They just seems like they want to come at you at 70 miles an hour on the highway and smash you up and wreck you. Um, if you follow Jesus, let me just give you a really hard truth. If we follow Jesus and Jesus had opponents, we'll have opponents. And this is a really hard one that I don't like mentioning, but it is true. If we don't have opponents as we follow Jesus, it may be that we're probably not flying that flag clear enough because the gospel is offensive. The gospel is truly an offensive message. It says, hey, you're rich, the gospel will make you poor. Hey, you're poor, the gospel will make you rich. Hey, you think you have life, you're a dead man walking without Jesus. Those are offensive messages. And so as we follow Jesus in life, we're going to have people who oppose us, who seem like enemies and roadblocks to us. And Paul says, beware of those people. And then the last one that Paul mentions, and this is where he mentions Luke, are people who are going along the highway with you for a long, long uh, haul. These are lifers. These are lifers. Luke is a lifer with Paul. If you read the book of Acts, it's written by Luke. And for the first half of Acts, Luke is saying, they, they, they did this, they did this. And about 12, 14 chapters in, uh, he begins to say, we. And that's when Luke on ramps with Paul. And as best we can tell, they kind of traveled together in mission for the rest of his life. They're together for a long time. They're lifers. Uh, Timothy is another lifer. You see in Acts when Timothy becomes a, a follower of Jesus and comes sort of under Paul's uh, coaching and teaching and in ministry, and he journeys with him for a long time. They may not be together in the same place, but they're on the same page. They're journeying together as they follow Jesus. My wife has a friend like this. Her lifer friend is a woman named Gina Mize. And uh, right after we got married, Natalie, I was serving in a church in a little town called Hartwell, Georgia. Uh, Gina uh, was going to that church. She and her husband, uh, William, they had a little girl, uh, Alyssa, at the time. And when we first moved there, Natalie didn't like her. She just said, I don't know what it is about her. I don't think I'm going to like her. You ever have someone like that? And then like three months later, they're best friends. Uh, that's usually how it goes, right? And so they become really fast friends. We sold our house, and we had to, when we were moving to plan our first church, and uh, we need a place to live. And Gina and her husband, William, said, oh, you can come live at our house for six weeks. It's okay. You just come live. And we're like, well, what do we need to pay? No, you don't have to pay us. Just come live at our house. So we get a storage thing and put all our stuff in storage, and we go and we live in these people's house. And then we move to Greenville, and we're there for eight years. And over that eight years, they're still friends. And in our darkest days of our uh, journey of faith, Gina's there. And when Nat's dad died, really quickly, Gina was there. And when my dad died, really quickly, Gina was there. And when I go back and look at photos of our boys at the hospital and family there, Gina's there. She drove a couple of hours to come and be there at the birth of our children. And even since we've lived here, when Nat was having a hard time at, in moments at, at the beginning and didn't have a ton of friends here, Gina flew up to spend some days with Natalie. She's a lifer. We may have geographically off-ramped from there, but they're on the highway together. They talk with one another uh, a couple of times a week. Oprah Winfrey the great prophet Oprah uh, made this statement. She said, lots of people want to ride with you in the limo, 
But what you want is someone who will take the bus with you when the limo breaks down. Man, that's so good. Like, that's not, that's not like a Bible verse, but that's really good. Everybody wants to ride in the limo with you. These people are the ones who want to be with you when you have to take the bus because the limo breaks down. Man, that's, um, that's a friend. So how do we create breathing room? Let me see if I can erase this. I'm going to get you to grab your note sheet, if you will. I'm going to get you a draw with me, if you don't mind. Um, I want you to draw an inner circle that's God and then outer circles that kind of go out and encompass these. So we'll call these like faithful friends. These are the on-rampers who stay with you for a long time. We'll call this new mission people. We'll call these deserters like Demas. And then you're going to have opponents like Alexander. And then you're going to have everyone else. I'm not going to attempt to draw all those circles, but I'll let you try to do that. How do we create breathing room? You understand. All right, so let me just do this. This is Alexander. This is Demas. This is Titus. And and Crescens and some other guys here. And this is Luke and Timothy in Paul's life. We see that in the passage right there. That's what's going on. And, uh, and everybody has some of these people, by the way. Um, in my life, I've got a friend who believes I'm a deserter to him. He'll text me about once a month and be like, I can't believe you left me. You were my best friend in the faith, and you moved. I'm like, you do realize, like, I was really happy where I was, but God called our family to... Like, go somewhere else. And he's like, doesn't matter. You deserted me. Like, okay. Like, and I don't want to make light of that. Like, he genuinely feels the weight of that severing of of us off-ramping from his life. Uh, In our life, I've got some new mission friends. We were trying to figure out something this morning on the soundboard. And I I messaged one of my off-rampers, a guy named Matthew, and was like, hey, man, I don't know how to do this on our soundboard. What do we do? And so he immediately messaged me back. He's a pastor of the church we started in South Carolina. And he said, oh, here's what you do. And we're going to try to troubleshoot that through at the end. We've off-ramped. God's called our family to a new mission. But we're still friends. We're close. I've got another friend like this named Terry. Uh, Terry was the last pastor I ever worked under, uh, served under. I was the youth pastor, and he was the pastor. And he'll call me once a month still. Check on Natalie. Check on the boys. Check on my soul. Ask if there's anything I'm struggling with in ministry. Uh, even I, Dan, I thought about you guys because Dan and Julie, who've been in Boston a couple of years, four. yeah, four years. God has them moving this summer to Washington D.C. Dan's in the Coast Guard, and so they will off ramp from their life in Charlestown and on ramp in a new place. Now, part of being in the military. Is four years ago, they off-ramp from a Christian community in uh, New York, in lower Manhattan. And, uh, and God on-ramped them here. And that's a tough life of being in the military. I want us to pastor their family really well before they leave and then send them off, not just to a new military assignment, but to a new mission from God. Uh, so that they're walking with the Lord and making much of Him where they are. And so, I mean, you've got these faithful. This is your immediate family. Uh, This is uh, your faithful friends, and this is your Christian family. And then at the center, you've got God, because I think one of the most powerful parts of this passage is when Paul says, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but everyone deserted me. 
That's heavy. And then he says, may it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from a lion's mouth. When he had nobody, God was still with him. And so I want to ask you, even before we start, like you've got all of these people. You've got everyone. You've got opponents, people who will desert you or have deserted you. You've got on-rampers and off-rampers. You've got faithful people, and then you've got God. Does God love every one of those people? Yeah, even the opponents, God loves fiercely. Uh, That's the point of the cross. Does God want every one of these people in your circles to know him? Absolutely. He wants every one of them to know him. Is it realistic for you to reach every one of these people and love them all equally? Absolutely not. Sometimes, though, these two people right here will suck so much of our energy and time. And so, and, and sometimes we do it with like this mission guilt of, man, I got to love them like Jesus does. And that is true, but they're sucking so much of our energy and our time away. So could it be helpful if we had a strategy that allowed us to figure out how to love every one of these people well, but proportionally in their influence? And I think that's true. I think it is. And it comes back to this breathing room idea of we find room on the margins when we agree on and live out what is central. And so a couple of things. Oh, and let me say, by the way, about God. If God, if our relationship with God is out of place, if our relationship with God is that he's like a casual sort of friend out here, then every one of these becomes idolatrous and we end up resenting those people. Because God is the only one who deserves to sit on the throne of our hearts. And so if I begin to put something or someone other than God at the center of my heart, it always ends in destruction and resentment. I remember, the, like, I think about holding my boys the first time they pulled those guys out. I don't know if I've ever told you when Noah came out of the birth canal, he had a big cone head, and the first photo of me looking at Noah is me going... Like that right there. Literally, I'll show you the photo one day. It's fantastic. Um, but man, after they cleaned him up and his head normalized, like I was like, God, I love that kid. Loved him. And I remember Owen, they brought him out. And man, he, he had a rough entry into this world. They had to do an emergency C-section. And when he comes out, he had a cut on his little cheek where the doctor had cut him. He looked like he'd been through war. And, uh, but they, man, they, they, we had a little University of Kentucky hat they threw on him and I remember holding him and it felt like he weighed about a pound and a half and man I'm holding them and I was smitten smitten but the truth is if I love them more than I love Jesus in the end that's going to end in resentment and problems because that's idolatry even of good things when we take good things and make them God things they become bad things even in our relationships and so Uh, A couple of things really quickly. One, we never blow off the edges, but we always clarify the center. To find breathing room in our life, we don't blow off the edges, but we clarify what's central. The edges are where mission occurs. Paul started churches because of the edges. It was this that caused Paul to go from living in the southeast part of the Roman Empire to spreading all the way to the center of the Roman Empire, even to what's now modern-day Spain and to modern-day Rome and to ancient Rome. It's because he loved everyone and felt like God loved everyone, and he thought everyone deserved a chance to hear the gospel, so he went. Our family lives in Charlestown because God loves everyone. I came here 
we came here March 2016 and stood up at the monument and uh, just prayed, like, God, do you want our family to come here? And the overwhelming feeling in our heart was, yes, I want you to come here. I want you to start a church. And I can tell you, I won't do it today, I can tell you in my mind what God put in our heart that this church would be one day, really clearly. And it's a really beautiful thing that I believe came from God. But our family lives here because God loves everyone. So we don't blow those people off, but we figure out who on, on the edges of my life might God be drawing in in mission. They don't stay there. We don't always have to love everybody equally um, or with equal energy and attention. Second, don't overexpend emotional energy on people who constantly oppose you. Don't give them more authority in your life than they deserve. If you see opponents in your life who are constantly pushing at you and pushing at you, uh, let them walk away. Jesus said, shake the dust off your feet if someone, if you're trying to share the gospel and someone's constantly rejecting it. There's no, God's not calling us to be martyrs in our dearest relationships with friends and family. If someone constantly opposes you, Walk, it's okay to walk away. Everybody doesn't have a right just because they're on your family tree to keep you torn up emotionally. Paul says, beware of Alexander. Beware of them. Now, when I was a kid, we were to beware of a few things. We were to beware of misbehaving when at school. Uh, my mom would tell our teachers the first day of school, now, if he gets out of line today, just hit him. <laughs> just hit him. Make an example of him, and after you get, after, like, when I hear that he got hit at school, then I'm going to hit him when he gets home. And then his granddad's going to hit him, and that's going to hurt worse than the other hits. So, like, I felt like a pinata. So it's like, beware of that. We were also to beware of, like, witches, werewolves, boogeymen. There was this valley that you had to drive through to get to my grandparents' house, and they would always say there was a boogeyman in that valley. So, man, I would, like, I remember being 5, 6, and 13 and, like, ducking down, uh, trying to just get through that hole, that valley, and back to my grandparents' house. We'd beware of those things. Yes, be a witness. Yes, be Christ-like. Yes, be loving. But beware of those people. If you have opponents in your life, don't carry the weight of it to the neglect of, sin, of your central relationships. The biggest opponent I ever had in ministry, and I mean, I told you a few weeks ago, is the guy I almost punched out because I thought he was going to punch me out. That guy was stealing so much of my emotional energy that there would be times I would be sitting there in the living room at our house just shaking, so upset. And Natalie was like, this guy is owning you. And she was said, I think you need to go see a counselor. And I did for a couple of months. It was some of the greatest money I ever spent because I was giving him more authority and weight in my life than God would have ever had me give him. He was an opponent. Uh, next, deserters and new mission off-ramps regarding those folks. We can't control God's call on people's loyalty to him, and we can't even control people's life situation. A couple weeks ago, I saw Carson. Uh, Carson's show on the radio uh, is an hour longer now, uh, if you didn't know that. So you can listen from 9 to 10. Um, while, you, while you're not being productive at work, you can listen to him for an extra hour. When I saw you posted that your show was an hour longer, but really that you had extended your contract, I was like, oh, man, that's, that's awesome. 
Because in the on-ramps and off-ramps of life, that means you're going to be here for longer. And I love that. Like, just to a man, I love that your family is going to be in this neighborhood longer. When I heard that you guys were moving, I knew it was inevitable that your family would move. That's just military life. But I was, like, really sad. Because I love you and Julie, and you are dear friends, and your wife will come feed our cats when we're out of town, and (laughs) we feed your cats when you guys are out of town. And all of that is really sad. You can't control all that stuff. So, Renee, if you'll go to that next slide for me. Here's a, here's a thing that I had to learn. Because you got a couple of choices uh, in life when it comes to stuff like this. Boom, that's the one. One of my mentors taught me this. Bloom where you're planted. Because if you're not careful, you'll constantly be looking for the next time to get out of here. Or you'll be protecting your heart. So, man, I can't love this person because they might leave me. And that's not how God would have us live. Bloom where you're planted. Where God has put you, bloom where you're planted. Uh, God put in our heart in 2004, October, um, to a desire to start a church. And it wasn't until, and I can tell you when it was, by the way. It was game four of the ALCS uh, when Ortiz hit the, that was the walk-off home run was game four. No, that was the, yeah, that was the Dave Roberts slide and, uh, and then Ortiz hit the extra inning home run. That was when God put in our heart to plant a church. It was not until March 31st, 2008, that God released us to go start a church. So three and a half years we were waiting. And in that time, we've wanted to start a church so bad. I was working for a church, and I asked my mentor, I said, well, what am I supposed to do? I feel like God wants us to start a church. And he would say this over and over, bloom where you're planted. Until God gives you your next assignment relationally, love people right where you are. Bloom where you're planted. Otherwise, you'll just... Hole up or go all in. Or you've got to decide to go all in. All right, next one. Regarding faithful and life people. These people right here, that inner circle. In your, and if you go to the next slide. This is so good. In your quest to get most from your life, pour energy into those who will gain most from your life. In your quest to get most from your life, pour your energy into this inner circle and those who will gain most from your life. Pour your energy into those people. For Paul, those people, he mentions them here, are Timothy, from whom we get a ton of new churches all over the Roman Empire, and the books of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. The other one that he mentions here is Titus, from whom we get the book of Titus. He mentions Mark, who writes the book of Mark. Mark was actually a deserter. He off-ramped, and Paul thought about never allowing him into his circle again, but then he on-ramps on the gospel, and Paul allows him to on-ramp in his ministry, and so he does. And so Mark, we get the book of Mark. And then Luke, for whom we get Luke and the book of Acts. These are his most faithful people. He's going to pour the most of himself into these men because he knows that in the kingdom, the kingdom will gain the most from his uh, investment in them. So let me give you just a few practical one-liners, and I won't elaborate on them too much, about pouring yourself into people who will gain the most Uh, from it one keep short accounts with the people who matter the most to you i'm not a big fan of i'm sorry natalie will mess up sometimes or i'll mess up she did this the other day she she messed up and offended me or something she came and she goes i'm sorry that you da 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 i was like oh no 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 but that was not an apology my love and uh she goes well i'm sorry i i was like That's not how it works in our family. See, how it works in our family is you mess up and you go, I did blank, I was wrong, will you forgive me? 
Now, in that moment, I've repented. I do more of this than she does, by the way. <laughs> way more, just so we're all clear. Hold on, I'm going to get that. Yeah, yeah. I'm the one who's <laughs> repenting way more than she is. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? Yes, I will forgive you. Or, not yet, let me get back to you once I've cooled off. You get your cool off time, and then you come back. Yes, I forgive you. The next step in that process is restitution. That's where if I broke anything or took anything, I have to put it back right relationally. And then the third part is reconciliation. That's where the relationship is good to go. Sometimes this is nothing. Like if something breaks, if I break something at the house, we can move that through that pretty quickly. Sometimes if it's a wound, we have to deal with that. And there's a reconciliation process that has to happen. Keep short accounts and allow those accounts to close out well uh, when something's broken. Also with that, let me encourage you, make deposits often and generously. We have a young couple that we're mentoring. I, I performed their wedding a couple of years ago. And they got real, And after one year of marriage, they were really like, we need to go see a counselor. And I asked him, I was like, I'm not discrediting that. How are you loving your wife? Give me tangible examples of you loving her beyond you help pay the bills and you work. And he couldn't. So I said, you need to start every day loving your wife in a tangible way. Maybe it's with words or actions or doings. I don't know what it is. Make deposits regularly in the lives and generously in the people that you love. If you're married, because marriage is one of these most central relationships, let me encourage you that only your immediate family is your family. This is just a word thing. I try to be really careful not to say we're going to see our family in the South. My family lives at 289, number one, Bunker Hill Street. That's our extended family. Words matter. And so make sure that those most sacred central relationships understand that they get the gravity that they deserve. And so another one, this is the one I violated earlier. Home is where your spouse is. It's not where you grew up. We need to be really careful not to say I'm going home when we're referring to going to see my mom or her mom. Uh, another one with marriage. Don't criticize your spouse to your parents or to your kids. Don't criticize your, your spouse to your parents or to your kids. Uh, let me encourage you. That's never going to be a fair fight. Here's how it works in my family. If Natalie criticizes me to her mom, I lose. If Natalie criticizes me to my mom, I lose. No matter what happens, when I get criticized to one of our parents, I lose. It's never a fair fight, and it's not going to be with parents. So don't criticize uh, your spouse to your parents. And if you're a parent with children who are married, don't listen to it. Tell them, I don't want to hear this. You go work your stuff out. So here's what I encourage couples to do when we're doing premarital counseling. Find a go-to of the same gender who you can criticize your spouse to. My go-to, if I want to criticize Natalie, is my brother. Her go-to, if she wants to criticize me, she gets two because she has more to criticize, uh, is her sister Nicole and her friend Gina. So I never have to walk into church and wonder, has Natalie talked bad about me to any of you? It's never going to happen. She never has to walk in and wonder, have I talked bad about her to any of you? Like, I may make jokes or whatever, but I'm not going to criticize my wife in front of anybody in this neighborhood. It's my brother. It rarely has to happen because it's one person. So she never has to sit down with my mom at Thanksgiving dinner and wonder, did he talk bad about me? It takes a lot of pressure off. With your kids, a couple more. With your kids, steward God's kids and clarify God's win for them. God's best for our kids is not that they would love us the most or their future spouses the most or their circle of friends the most or whatever. It's that they would love Jesus the most. 
and we work toward that and their life. And so, and then one last thing that I want to say, and this is a bit of a caveat regarding the church and celibacy. We have several people in our church who are not married, not yet married, or maybe never will be married. And that's great. And, uh, We've got to be really careful. I have to be really careful as the one who stands up here the most to not hold marriage up as if marriage and family are the greatest thing for Christians. The greatest thing for Christians is that we would follow Jesus. And in doing that, I think churches have done a poor job of we don't know sometimes how to handle and love well people who aren't married. Um, And we need to, as in early days in this church, love people well who aren't married. Uh, and are part of our faith family. And by that I mean inviting them out to meals, making sure that they are coming to stuff. And we can almost treat unmarried people at times in our churches, and I'm not meaning our church, but in churches like second-class citizens, and we need to be really careful. I heard a, um, the week of Thanksgiving, I heard a guy named Ed Shaw. He's a British church planter who's same-sex attracted but lives a life of celibacy uh, and following Jesus. Uh, to be faithful to the gospel and yet plant churches. Amazing man of God. Amazing man. He wrote a book called um, Same-Sex Attraction in the Church. It's fantastic. And, and he says that marriage isn't the end all. The church is family. And so knowing that Christ is the end all, being family with one another is really critical for us as we go forward. And I think we need to try to model that as best we can. And so finally, at the last circle, God. God is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Proverbs 18.24 says, When God is all we have, we find that he's all we need. Cultivate your relationship with God. If we cultivate this relationship with God, these relationships are much easier and less complicated. It doesn't work the other way around. This is the most central relationship. I'm less short with my kids when I'm walking close with Jesus. Our marriage is thriving when I'm walking close with Jesus, when I'm fully trusting in him. My friendships are best when I'm walking close with Jesus. I can deal with opponents best when I'm walking close with Jesus. This is critical. If you don't know how to do this, or maybe you've never begun a relationship with God, I'd love to talk with you at any point about that. That's part of being church together. There's some daily things that come with this. Just like there's some daily things that come with loving these people well, there's some daily things that come with walking in grace, walking in faith, and walking with God. And so we create breathing room out here on our relational plate by clarifying and investing our best energy on what's central. Let me pray for us.